fact, throughout the 80s, the CIA had been carefully establishing agents within Soviet intelligence and defense circles. Precious sources, like avionics expert Adolf Tolkachev, seen here on his way to a meeting in Moscow with his CIA contact. The KGB suddenly started to arrest the CIA's most important Soviet spies. In 1985, we began to lose cases, by which I mean Soviet officials working for us, and some of them disappeared. Then the West lost General Dmitry Polyakov of Soviet military intelligence. Polyakov had retired after 18 years of spying when the KGB pounced. He had been recruited while at the United Nations in New York. Polyakov was our crown jewel. He worked for us for so many years and he achieved such a rank that rather than us looking at an organization through the eyes of one of our sources, looking at that organization from the bottom up, with Polyakov, eventually we were able to look at that organization, the GRU, his organization, from the top down, as well as look at the KGB and the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, the Communist Party apparatus. In 1991, Sandy Grimes joined the team investigating the CIA's agent losses. In charge, Gene Vertefeld, now suspicious there was a KGB mole in their ranks. Mole hunt took three years, homing in on CIA counterintelligence officer Aldrich Ames. The FBI filmed him secretly in Bogota in 1993. The FBI staked out Ames's house and tapped his phones. The breakthrough had come from CIA analysis of his bank statements. On the 21st of February in 1994, Ames was arrested for spying, along with his wife Rosario, after years of high living. One weapon could do the job, a handheld heat-seeking missile called the Stinger. In the mid-1980s, the U.S. began covertly supplying stingers to the Mujahideen. The balance of power began to shift. For a stinger helicopter, it's just a sitting duck. If it is within the range of the stinger, then uh, the stinger operator, I mean, will, uh, will aim it. Uh, aim at the stinger, then go for a super elevation. Then he will make adjustments uh, according to the movement of the helicopter. Then you, you fire and you see a big flames and smoke will go up. For a period of about 100 days after the introduction of the Stinger, the Soviets were losing one aircraft per day. One aircraft per day. This drove this into the high-cost marine in a hurry. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today. My guest is the former Deputy Director of Overseas Operations at the CIA, Jack Devine. How are you, sir? I'm good. Good to speak to you, Jack. Yeah, I, you know, I appreciate you coming on here. I've gotten through about 70% of your book, and it's really fascinating. 
I would recommend that my audience pick it up. The name of the book is called Good Hunting, an American Spymaster Story with Jack Devine. How long did it take you to kind of uh, go through the process of writing your book? Well, you know, it always takes you much longer than than uh, writers anticipate. Based on my discussion with folks that have written about a book, probably took me three years all in. You know, you start out with an idea, and then you start to develop a chronology, and then you then you need to set aside six, seven months to get it cleared by uh, by the agency. Uh, the big issue there is uh, sources sources and methods. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to inquire about. Uh, and when you sign up, you sign a, a, a commitment that anything you publish will run by the publications office. So it can be onerous, but it is necessary. I mean, even in my case, I thought I knew exactly where the line was for, on everything. But there were some people that I thought were overt because they were known to public, but not as far as the agency was concerned. So you have to double-check things like that. There were countries I served in that I don't think anybody would think we didn't have a place there, but for a set of reasons, the agency does not recognize that publicly. So you, they're the types of things that you get hung up on. You can have an opinion about a senator or the president uh, policy, and they really don't interfere with that. It's all about the sources and the methods. Right, right. That's pretty interesting. So I wanted to kind of go to the beginning, like, you know, what kind of motivated you to join the agency? And then if we can walk through a little bit of some of that process. Sure. Um, actually, uh, I was born in Philadelphia, so I must say from a, basically a blue-collar environment, the agency was not high on my my radar, uh, but after graduate school, I started teaching. I majored in international affairs and history. Nobody in my family had been in the foreign service. In fact, they hadn't been in the government. Uh, no defense attaches. Uh, and, uh, so we had very little exposure to the world of the intelligence. And this was in the late 60s. And agency wasn't on the front page of the paper every day. There was the Bay of Pigs, and that was a big scandal and captured a lot of news. But then the agency went away. So most people in my neighborhood had no idea what CIA was all about. So in, I think it was about 65 or 66, David Wise, who just died as a big obituary in New York Times a few weeks ago, published a book called The Invisible Government. I'm not recommending it or anything, but back in the time, there was a scandalous book about the CIA and how the military and intelligence complex work together to control the world. Now, it's not true, uh, but it, it, made for, it made for me a fascinating read. And I said, this is really fascinating to my wife, Pat. She had given me the book as a gift. And she said, well, why don't you apply? Why don't you send them a, a notice? And it was a whim, a serendipitous moment where your life changes without a tremendous amount of reflection. So in those days, uh, pre-iPhones, uh, you know, you took a pen with ink and wrote a letter, and I wrote a very brief letter saying I was interested. 
and a few months went by, and the agency reached out, and then I began their their processing, which John Jordan know about it, I can elaborate. But my main point here is that it isn't as though during college I set out to be a medical doctor. Or I had no idea, and if I hadn't read that book, uh, I might still be in Philadelphia doing uh, an education field, which I, I think is a great field, and I enjoyed it. But uh, I think by, by sheer circumstance, I got into a business in which my my DNA really matched the business. I mean, when I say my end, it's not necessarily the agency feels this way, but I felt I really belonged even 32 years later. I walked out the door. I thought, what a lucky person I was to have actually sat down and penned that letter. I guess a lot of our lives are serendipitous, but I can surely point to my end, and it was a single read of a book that, that uh, led to my entering the agency. So upon joining the agency, you know, there's a process of training and, and different types of training that you go through in order to be a case officer. Um, but early on in your career, you crossed paths with um, Aldrich Ames. Uh, can we talk about the early part of your interaction with him? Uh, sure. Uh, what would you like to know, John? Well, just like maybe describe like what what you kind of uh, you know what you thought of him as early on, and then um, maybe how you know were you surprised when you when you found out that that he had betrayed the United States and uh, and, and that sort of thing. Well, this is a this could be a long saga. We might have to have segments of your show over the. <laughs> Over the over the coming weeks, but uh, what what happened is when I joined the agency, there's like a holding plan, and you go into the the career training program, which is the program designed to bring, uh, to, as you use the word, case officers, people that are going to run spies around the world, are trained. So Rick actually was there before me, and I came in uh, several months, uh, a few months anyway. Uh, he went into the program, and I went into the next class. He had uh, an interesting background, and then his father worked in the agency. As I said, not only did my father work, and there wasn't a single person in my uh, 2,000 cousins that uh, ever worked in the CIA, but his father was in the CIA. Rick had actually gone to Rangoon as a young man, a young, young child, I guess, uh, when his father was assigned in Rangoon. The father was not successful as an operator. Uh, there's a other derogatory statement in his file, and I can say this because it's in the public domain. Um, but when I first met Rick, he knew the folklore of the business. He'd been around it. He, he spoke the spy business, his vocabulary. And while he was an eclectic reader, uh, he had kind of... A, a, rich library of books about intelligence. In fact, uh, we traded books. He gave me a book by Eric Gambler on Coffin for Demetrius, one of the classic uh, spy books, you know, with betrayal. And so he was into that uh, deeply, even in his first day in the building. His father was in the counterintelligence staff, ironically. So, uh, and I remember Rick once saying to me, you know, the 
queen of spades of the intelligence business is the counterintelligence field. That's catching moles for your audience, you know, finding the spies inside your own organization. So even before he went bad, he was uh, fixated. Maybe that's too strong, but highly focused on on the, the aspect of moles and, and so forth. So <clears throat> he... Uh, he had gone to college and was interested in the arts and theater and went to the University of Chicago, as I recall. Then I think dropped out, but then went back in, finally got his degree. There was some strain between him and his father. It wasn't a perfect relationship, but it was still his father. And it was ironic that he went into the business. So when I met him, he was a cold warrior at heart, you know, as most people in the agency have a sense of mission right? and uh, I would say he was you know uh, fully focused and that he went and made his career in Russian operations in other words he really wanted to work the Russian tar- target where I ended up in Latin America uh, working in uh, resisting the, the communist takeover in countries and more of the action side of it and he was more interested in in, in Russian operations and studied Russian. And, uh, well, he wasn't a great case officer. He did some things well, uh, but he had Russian language. And as a result of it, he was often used on operations in the agency on Russian operations. But he, uh, his career did not prosper in a very slow, slow rate. Uh, I think as the years went by, his father was a, a drinker and Sometimes this happens instead of being repulsed and never take another drink. I mean, he himself became uh, a heavy drinker. I was going to say an alcoholic, but as I recall, the psychologist um, said that he, he could stop and start. He wasn't uh, addicted to it as an alcoholic. Uh, so Rick, uh, Rick had a drinking problem. So this also slowed down his career. Uh, I did go to his wedding. Uh, I would just say uh, he married a lovely analyst. They broke up years years later. Uh, and Rick was not, uh, you know, sometimes the books that are out there don't talk about, you know, being a flashy dresser and all that. He was anything but. I don't say he wore the same shirt every day, but it looked like <laughs> it. Uh, heavy smoker, you know, tobacco stained teeth. I mean, but... I don't know, John, I hope I'm not going on too long for your audience, but I will take you to the end of the story unless you want to break it up here. No, no, that's that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So uh, if you fast forward, I didn't see Rick for over 20 years. I mean, literally didn't see him. I was overseas. He was overseas. I think I saw him once in the corridor. It was the same old Rick. Um, but I knew his career wasn't prosperous. And he had some uh, rough spots on the career. But I think what happened, he he married a, a younger woman, a Colombian gal who came from money, which became a problem in the background checks because they had money, but they lost it. So when she was dating Rick, I guess she had high expectations for him. And she almost had as many shoes as... Elda, uh, 
Philippines. So she she spent money on herself, and I think that demands a big house, big car, and I think Rick would have been perfectly happy in a cell like a monk with his books and his cigarettes. But he was under financial pressure for a long time. I think the other aspect psychologically was uh, this happens with almost any defector in any society that changes sides is he had a, a, a huge uh, self uh, sense of importance and intellect that exceeded, I think, what I would call reality. I mean, he was well read, but, uh, and he could have been a better case officer. I'm not sure he would have been a great recruiter, but he could have been more effective, but he had this strain of laziness that impeded his his ability to uh, to affect the effect uh, at the highest rate. So uh, his career languished, and as a consequence, uh, I think he saw other people passes him, passing him by, and he felt that it was uh, it was the system. In other words, the system was not being fair to him. The truth of the matter is, he was. Uh, uh, lazy and liked to do certain things. He'd do well. If he didn't like to do them, he didn't do them. So uh, he was uh, inconsistent performance. So what happens, you get disgruntled and you'll find that any of the factors when they're interviewed, one of the biggest considerations isn't some cosmic geopolitical thing, but rather how they relate within their own system. So he had a disdain for the system. Would he have volunteered to work for the KGB uh, uh, on his own? Uh, that remains to be seen. But his drinking habit, the pressures for the money, and his disenchantment with his own career in the agency. And he was given a unique opportunity because of his language skills. Not so much his talent, but his language. He was assigned to one of the most sensitive, the most sensitive uh, offices in the CIA dealing with Russians. So he knew all of our best spies. Right. And uh, without going to my notes, I would say that in uh, uh, June or July, I'm trying to remember the year, Rick Rick was sitting across the Russian embassy and had a couple of drinks and then another couple of drinks and he basically walked into the embassy and he thought he could get away with just telling them uh, dangling a little information in front of them uh, and playing the Russians along. He underestimated that the Russians also have very good operators. And they probably had booked on him and his ego. And He left there and we returned the next time. He provided them the identities of 11 uh, Russians who worked for CIA inside of the Soviet system. Wow. All of them were executed. Wow. So, uh, and again, we could spend the whole day on Ains. Uh, he was eventually caught, and part of that was his uh, laziness as well. But to talk about how he got caught, we would spend another 15 minutes. So when he, um, when that had happened initially, uh, obviously the agency wasn't aware of it, but once all of the, you know, their kind of insiders uh, in Russia, once these guys were getting killed, did that set the alarms off at that point? The agency knew they had a serious problem. 
but there were a couple uh, incidents that occurred that were coincidental in the same time frame, which distracted the mole hunters. The first was there was a Marine guard in Moscow named Lone Train. He was eventually prosecuted and sent to jail. But what he had done is uh, he was recruited by a Russian member of the embassy staff who was working for the KGB. And she got him to bring them into the embassy. And at the time, when we started to lose assets, uh, there was the belief that somehow they'd gotten into the agency station, the CIA station, and had been able to get to the files. As history would show later on, they didn't get that far. But there was a tremendous amount of focus on what was laundry, and they thought it was uh, a compromise. It was very hard for a number of people in the CIA to face up to the fact that we had a, uh, a mole, an enemy with inside. Um, I'm somewhat surprised at that because if you just look at the business, it's almost predictable on actuary charts. In other words, it's part of the business. We recruited an air system. Why would they be unsuccessful and we would be uniquely successful? So I think it was just uh, so hard emotionally to accept that somebody didn't love their country or the institution the same way that most people did in the state. The second thing was technology was changing very uh, rapidly and there were some technical compromises of the embassy and there was a view that perhaps the Russians were able to bounce lasers off the windows and uh, consequently they were picking up every, every sound of a typewriter when people use typewriters. So there was a, a feeling that the, uh, I'm oversimplifying it, but that there was a technical compromise in the Italian uh, Eventually, uh, they had to face the reality that neither of those things were true. We had, we had someone inside, and the famous mole hunt started. And when he initially went over to them, that took place in, in Rome? No, 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 no. That was in the United States. He Robert. actually worked in a, in a unit uh, in the CIA that worked with the FBI and had or collaborated with them on uh, working against Russian KGB officers in Washington. So he had a legitimate reason to be dealing with them. So the FBI, while they were conscientious in watching the movements of people dealing with Russians, when they saw him on the script. It was because he was doing work with them. So uh, uh, Rome was near the end of his tenure as a as a KGB mole. And and that was the time that you had uh, sort of crossed paths with him again from the beginning of your career to that point. Right. So when I arrived in Rome and. Remember, it was 87 or 88. Uh, Rick was there. He was getting ready to leave. Uh, and his wife was pregnant. He had asked to be able to stay a while longer. And they had extended him. So I had the misfortune of having him for about seven months or uh, working on, uh, with me. Uh, and at that time, he had had problems drinking earlier. But he had been sent back to dry, uh, dry out. And I remember the first thing I did, I saw 
all the look if you start drinking again. You're off the wagon. Run back home. And I asked the deputy to keep an eye on him, which he did. What he didn't see with Rick is he was a he was a binge drinker, so he drank on the weekend, drink at night. Um, can't go into it, but he was also in a different physical location in the mm-hmm. embassy, so you didn't have eyes on him all day long. Uh, but uh, the one thing that I remember most about him, I mean, you know, because people drink, it doesn't make him a spy. He wouldn't have been totally unique in the world about working abroad. But <clears throat> the thing that was stuck in my mind as a curiosity was we had a defector come out who was a Eastern European intelligence service uh, who might have been able to identify that we had a mole. But because Rick spoke Russian, he went out to meet him. And uh, I insisted, and Rick, when he was quoted in another book, that made him, made him go out and polygraph the guy. And I think what Rick was worried about in the polygraph was that, of course, the polygraph, the guy would cough up Ames's name. So what he did is polygraphed and re-polygraphed them several times so that the polygraph deteriorated in value. Mm. And then he came back. I had a, uh, a discussion with the polygrapher, and he said, why didn't you buy him follow policy? Come back in and talk to me about it. And he over the questions come up with new questions. And uh, he said, no, Rick insisted. I would I would have come back. So I saw Rick, and it was one of those heated moments, but it was heated on my side. In other words, I got into his face, which I don't do very often, but it's something that most people don't uh, don't forget when it happens. And he didn't bat an eye. He just stood there like a sphinx. And I thought it was rather amazing that he didn't push back and say, well, listen, boss, I mean, I got another, let me tell you my view on this. But he didn't bat an eye. And I thought it was so odd that it stuck in my head. And if you fast forward a few years, when the Mulhan team came to me, they said, Jack, we have a question for you. We have a problem in the building. Do you think it could be Rick Ames? And of the thousands of people I've worked with, uh, he's the only one that I said it was possible. And the reason was that one moment where I thought there's something wrong with this guy. Really? That, but I couldn't. I couldn't do the calculus. I couldn't figure out what it was other than in Spanish is a word, ojo, which means watch out. Mm. It's an ojo moment for you. You. You know, look, there's something wrong with it. It could be anything. So uh, it was interesting. And uh, the, the staff the staff did many checks on, on Ames and tried to value who could, could be. He wasn't even on the top of the list there for a while. He was like number five of being suspicious. Uh, but eventually uh, there were a certain piece of information that came out that made him uh, certain that he was the uh, he was the all. And what year was it that he was oh, no, e- eventually it, captured, or or confronted? I guess. You know. I would say I would say about eighty four, eighty five. I don't remember the date without having it in front of me. It was about eighty four, no, maybe eighty five. I think it was eighty five, to be exact. Um, Wait, th- that was when the CIA. One of the things that I found. That was when they knew it was it, he was, that he was the mole? Okay, okay. Yeah. No, no. He was arrested in 85. They, they knew 
they knew several months, if not a year beforehand. But because you know someone's a mole, uh, in the Soviet Union, they, they take you back in those days, take you down the basement and shoot you. In the United States, you had to have a law. You have laws, so therefore you have to prove it. You have to have evidence, right? I see, right. So you can have somebody say, well, he's your mole, and you got to catch him. So the FBI, or even the CIA, but they mounted, they put a house across the street. They, they had, uh, went through his trash. They had an audio device on everything in his apartment. They surveilled them. I mean, for months on end, didn't find anything. And then one day, <laughs> he had instructions from the KGB on a meeting. And a very good, well, any good case officer would have gotten rid of it, would have let, let the match and burnt a piece of paper. He threw it in the trash. And it was that piece of paper that they were able to establish that he was, in fact, they were able to go to court and prove he was a Russian spy. Wow. And he admits to it, you know, he ended up cooperating uh, because of his wife and child. Um, one of the most fascinating things on Ames um, that stuck with me is, I don't think there's been many television interviews with him, but there was one by a woman, I can't remember who it was at the time, and it was an ordinary interview. It was interesting. And then she got to the point in the interview, and she said, well, Rick, have you ever lost any sleep over these 11 people that you sent to their death? And he hesitates for a megasecond. And then he says, you know, I thought I would, but I didn't. Now, that qualifies you as a psychopath. If, I mean, you're totally devoid of feeling and that someone is going to die because of your direct consequences and you have no remorse. So I think it says something about, and it's insightful about Ames' mindset. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that that is um, pretty disturbing. Uh, do you think, did he know any of those guys or he just knew who they were and what their roles were? No, he knew some of them. So oh, wow. he knew a great deal about them. Yeah, that's, I, I know that kind of set the agency back a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, and, and as far well, as... Well, that's a modest statement a little bit. Yeah. It was a real blow. I mean, it was a, a horrendous blow to the uh, morale. Uh, they had to you know, rebuild that entire stable. I mean, you know, they're not hundreds of malls. So when you take out 11... You know, he didn't get them all, but it was, it was hurtful. And the FBI went through the same thing in the 90s. Uh, well, and their spy was running for a longer time, Robert Hansen. And it was, yeah, devastating blow. Louis Free, who was the FBI chief at the time, used to go to the mass with them. So it's like, you know, horrendous, horrendous uh, uh, blow of betrayal. Yeah, for sure. So another... Um or, or rather, something that kind of jumped out at me as I'm going through your book, uh, something that you said, and then further into the book, it kind of, there's points where you, you kind of make the connection, and then it explains why you said what you said and why you feel how you feel about this, where you talked about you're against the politiz- politizations of um, <clears throat> intelligence, and it's typically if it's done by the White House. Uh, where they're bringing politics into, um, you know, using intelligence or the agency and, and 
steering certain events in, in the favor of their politics. I'd like to take a quick pause before we continue my conversation with Mr. Divine and talk to you about Blinkist. In today's age, it can be hard to find a time to sit down and learn more. A lot of people work and have a side gig or work two jobs or they have to take care of the family when they get home from work. So you feel like you don't have enough time to sit down and relax and read and develop yourself. Well, there's an app that I highly recommend. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and it basically condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read it or you can listen to it. Blinkist is made for people like you who want to get the main talking points of the book quickly without having to sit and spend the time reading the entire book. With the audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you can finish four books in a day. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, and to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I have a better and more well-informed opinion on the topic. I use Blinkist when I'm making breakfast in the morning before I start my day, or when I'm ending my day at night, I like to read and learn, and I think that helps me fall asleep. I've read and listened to these books, and I highly recommend you check them out. The first book is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. The second book is called Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think by Von Harris Rosling, Ola Rosling, Anna Rosling Runland. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash recon to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash recon to start your free seven-day trial. Now I'd like to get back to my conversation with Mr. Divine as he talks about the role of politics in intelligence. Well... You know, when you go into CIA, and you've, you've seen this on uh, many many movies, you know, on the one side you have all the stars of the people that have fallen, and I knew many of them. On the other side, there's a quote from the uh, New Testament, John. It's the only thing on either wall, and it's uh, carved in marble, and it says, you shall know the truth, and it will set you free. And it's interesting that that is, in fact, the mantra of the CIA. In other words, we're not selling cars. We're not, you know, building tanks. Your whole mission in life is to provide the truth, a product. In other words, your job is to tell the president of the United States and key policymakers, get the best information you can and give it to them un, un, uh, unqualified. And uh, I mean, it be, it's just, you just have to call it the way you see it. So that's your product. And everybody that walks through that door, that's, they know that's their mission. It's part of the culture. Um, I remember a couple of times I used, when I would edit some analyst work when I was running the counter-narcotics program, they were upset. They thought it was political. I was politicalization. I was actually just trying to make the sentence a little better. So there was a great sensitivity about not just whether it's the White House, whether your boss or anybody's trying to shape the information. Now, the agency has been pretty lucky over the years, given the amount of intelligence that it's produced, that there are only a few occasions where the issue of politicization actually uh, you know, becomes a, a red-hot issue. Uh, and 
what I, I've said to a number of folks over the years, during my long career in the agency and all of those I've spoken to before and after, you couldn't tell the political, whether for sure, whether someone was a Democrat or Republican, because you didn't bring it into the office. You know, they might suspect you're a little bit more conservative, a little bit more liberal, and most people in the CIA are represented the United States and sort of the makeup of different political views. But he, um, what I would say is people in the CIA is unprofessional to bring politics in. So there's high sensitivity on this issue. Um, and the president would be very well advised. You're better served as president, not by having CIA tell you what you want to hear. What good is that? You want to, you want, you want to know what is inconsistent, where the problems are. So, uh, when there's efforts to, to muscle, uh, muscle the analyst, and I think probably the place where that's most, uh, most controversial was on the Iraq war. And there's still lingering, uh, pains about that. But by and large, uh, most presidents have been very circumspect and have been very careful not to uh, not to politicize. They may not like it, and the longer they're in office, the less it becomes, it becomes an issue. So I think we have to be careful. I also think it's uh, unwise for people from the CIA to go out and get into uh, political discourse. In other words, there's a, there's a tradition with the president that I think everybody in the business should practice, and that is, you know, you don't talk about the incumbents as a person, or, or but you can criticize policy. I mean, I think if you don't believe there's something right with their policy in Mexico or China or whatever, that's fair game, but not to get into the politics of it. So, uh, you know, it is something to worry uh, about. You want to make sure and keep an eye on our president so they don't drift away. But I think it's a pretty healthy uh, environment in the agency. And I think the current leadership is very hard fixed on maintaining the best tradition. Right. And, and these are, you know, traditions that have been um, developed over years of, of service and, and that kind of thing. It actually comes out of World War II. Sometimes you can remember, this is, I wasn't around for sure, but the forerunner group of CIA was the OSS, right. all the special services. And they ran all types of, they ran the Operation Intelligence Collection during the war. And they were, you know, I've heard it before, the greatest generation. So the people that founded CIA and businesses and so on were of that generation. Sacrifice, mission, you know, love of country, um, can-do attitude. In other words, we're going to get it done. But what they also brought with them in this particular business was a, a set of principles, and one of them was, you know, the information cannot be fiddled with. And there was a famous analyst, I think one of the buildings is named after Sherman Kent, and uh, he set down sort of the principles early on in the agency about information and uh, how it's treated and double-checking facts. In other words, making sure that the focus on analysis was uh, untampered. And so I, I think there's a rich, rich, rich tradition. And people are trained. And, you know, if anyone is... The way you get yourself fired, there's a number of ways in the agency, but one of them is fooling around with intelligence, making it up, fabricated. It's lethal. 
if anybody exaggerates their information, exaggerates their performance, that's a, a, the sure path to the door. So once you got uh, your, your training under your belt and some experience, uh, you started to run uh, operations in Latin America. Um, and then specifically, you spoke about your time in, in Chile and, and um, what things, some things were like there for you. But kind of um, one thing, I guess, like from the outside looking in, is obviously people assume a lot, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is completely off the mark as far as what the government was doing in a certain place at a certain time. And um, Pinochet ended up in power, and, and you kind of alluded that uh, certain things were not done deliberately by the agency. Things just kind of happened that way. But it, it does seem like often a lot of the public and then especially a few of my friends or actually rather someone, one of my friends is like kind of big on conspiracy theories. And I think people just kind of when they're into that, they kind of get to a point where everything is part of like a master plan down to the detail. And I'm just like, I just don't think it's possible to that level, you know? And I, I think what you spoke about your time in Chile kind of illustrated that. Well, uh, actually, Chile is a classic uh, case study. And the beauty of the Chile uh, story is the documents have been declassified. In other words, people could sit around a bar and argue, but there are, every page is read. There's actually a, a, a report the first report of the coup when I was a young man, which actually my wife got, not me, because my agent uh, was trying to get out of town, couldn't find me, found her, was a door from the social setting, and gave her the report that the government was going to be uh, overthrown. But the idea that I'd be reading that cable was stunning. I mean, years later, there it was. I thank God my English teacher taught me how to, how to spell. But in any case, <laughs> Uh, in any case, uh, the history's there. So, uh, and what it, what the history uh, tells you is that uh, and there's a lot of confusion, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, belabor it here with your audience. But when there was uh, Salvador Allende was uh, elected uh, by a plurality that's less than fifty percent, of course, and there were two other candidates. Uh, but it was enough to become president. And there was an interim between the time you're elected and the time that you become uh, president. At that time, uh, President Nixon and uh, National Security Director Henry Kissinger were convinced, you have to remember Cuba was up in the Caribbean as a full-fledged communist state. There was uh, Communism was rampant through Latin America. Terrorism was on the on the upshoot in various countries, and the White House felt that this was going to be. They called it the Red Sandwich. That you'd have Cuba on one end and Chile on the other. And it is true that Allende's party had elements of the Communist Party in it, and the, the socialists. Some of them were further left than the communists. So. 
the president sent an, a, a directive to the CIA uh, to try the from becoming uh, president. Uh, this is not done every day, trust me. And, but there's a very important point in this. When people see things about the CIA on the action part, as opposed to spying, you don't see, you rarely see anything in the newspaper that's scandalous in the spying area. But in the action area, there's room for dispute problems. And what the people have to understand is the most misunderstood thing. There's not a single operation I know of in history, and I've studied this carefully, or during the time I was there, and intimately familiar with all of them. Um, all of them are approved by the President of the United States in writing. You have to have what they call finding. You have to actually sign it and say, this is what I want you to do. So CIA is an executor, not a maker of policy. Having said that, the chief of station at the time wrote back, and I said, no, all this is declassified. You read it until your eyes glass over. He said, look, this isn't going to work. You know, There's not enough time. There's not enough people on the ground. This isn't going to work. It's going to be bloody. And the White House said, go do it anyway. So it turned out to be a failure disastrous failure, and it was so bad that it actually swept my NDM with a wave of popularity. It was so badly botched. Uh, and part of it was done by rogue elements not even tied to the agency. At that time, uh, Kissinger sent a note saying, no more coup plotting. Do everything you can to stop the communists and the socialists from taking over, but we're done plotting with the military. And people may argue about it, but it's in the documents. If we stopped plotting with the military. But if you fast forward to 73, uh, the country collapsed. In fact, if you want to look in the mirror, you look at Venezuela. It's, it's even worse shaped than, than, uh, than Chile. And the other thing about it is the, China, the uh, Cubans and the Russians are more deeply embedded there. So uh, what happened is the country was just collapsing and the military started to fall apart. And uh, there was a, a revolt by a group of tank commanders against the palace. Uh, and the head of the military went out and talked them back in the tanks. But it was that day that they started the plot. The military on their own started the plot to overthrow Allende. And uh, we didn't know about it because we were not in cahoots with the military. And as I said, the first report was only three days before the coup, and that came firsthand to, to my wife. So uh, a lot of people confuse what they call track one, try the coup, and don't understand the next two or three years, which was intensive work on part of CIA, but it was to contain IND and to try and hold the parties together and the, uh, and the, and the media so that they could take him down in the next election. So the coup was uh, not provoked by CIA, okay. not the one that brought him down, and nor, uh, uh, nor was the agency involved in, in, in the making of it. So Pinochet came in, and people uh, in Washington and in Santiago, uh, Chile, really didn't know him. Uh, there's, there's cables that you'll find saying that he was weak and will never move against the government, and that was the, the principal analytical view. And the truth of the matter is, 
we, the military was not part of the mainstream in Chile in those days. And it was quite a shock to all concerned that there was such a heavy hand used. And we didn't stay around long. I mean, we moved on to another assignment. So I didn't have to uh, spend much time during the Pinochet regime. But, uh, you know, you had the extreme left, and now you move to the far right. And, uh, you know, when you get back and you land the United States and and the land is free and everybody can freely say what they want about their politicians and perhaps endlessly, you, you really can appreciate democracy. So I saw the, the repression of the left, the repression of the right, and then only strengthens uh, all of us that were there, our own commitment to the democratic process. So I would like to talk about um, your time uh, in Afghanistan and running operations where you were providing assistance or the U.S. was providing assistance to the Mujahideen at the time uh, as they were fighting the Russians in, during the 1980s and also uh, about the the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Um, can we kind of walk through uh, some of the beginning of how you got involved in that and then you know whatever details you can share about your time there? Sure. Um you know, it's ironic that the, the war was named after uh, Charlie Wilson. And I knew Charlie well. I traveled with him. Uh, and I think he was a great uh, a great American institution. He went to Annapolis. He was a dedicated patriot. Uh, had his heart and soul in the, the fight against the communists. I mean, a real classy, um, a bipartisan. Uh, but we had that in Congress. Tough on foreign policy, liberal on the social issues walked across the aisle. I remember even going to his uh, memorial service where they played a video. No one was paying attention, unfortunately. But he was talking about the importance of bipartisan uh, foreign policy, which I think when you do things like Afghanistan, uh, you need to have support of both parties or it's not worth getting involved in. But that's a side issue. So Charlie was a, you know, a fascinating character in many ways. But it wasn't Charlie's war. It was uh, the U.S. government, traditional war. Charlie was very helpful in getting money steered from Congress, but he had very little hands-on role with uh, with the uh, the program. I, he and I and our wives had dinner at Sparks Restaurant in New York for your listeners. Sparks is the steakhouse where Paul Castellano, head of the mafia, was shot down at the front door. So oh, for wow. Charlie, this was romance. This was like, you know, a, uh, a place to be, to go. But I remember leaning across the table with that Charlie grin and saying, Jack, I know, I know you didn't like the book. God, you're going to hate the movie. <laughs> and he was right. But, but he knew what it was. He was a great public relations guy. He was on the importance of getting this uh, book and movie done. Uh, I think it, in many ways served a good purpose. But what it didn't serve is history. I mean, it's not a, uh, it's not uh, anywhere near the full account of the report. It's the fundamental story. For example, the stinger was a, the key. If I was to put my finger on the one thing that turned that tide in that country, because we were the Mujahideen were losing up until that time it was introduced. Charlie had absolutely nothing to do with the stinger. And if you read the book, 
it's even in there in a footnote. Charlie's, I didn't have anything to do with it. So uh, Charlie was important, but as a program, it was one of the agency's most successful programs. I mean, there's a group of people that are unsung heroes, and I think some of your listeners may be in this group. And that's the logistics people. You know, I'm reading a book, and I'm almost done, Ulysses S. Grant. And you wonder how he beat Lee and how the union prevailed for a lot of good economic reasons. But he had experience as a quartermaster. He knew logistics. He knew how to make things move and get in places and what it took to move an army. And uh, I was uh, helpful. I uh, was helped tremendously by having world-class logistics officers. None of them get in books. None of them aren't movies. Never highlighted. It looks dull. But when you support 120,000 fighters, then you have to do it at long distance. And you, know, you need 120,000 AK-47s and RPGs. And, yes. and uh, you know, we were bringing in 9,000 mules a, a year in Toyota trucks. The mules were particularly interesting because Tennessee mules didn't work. In other words, you can't bring an American mule and put them in the hills of of, uh, of, uh, of Pakistan. So uh, what we did is we ended up buying uh, 9,000 marching them across across China. I actually fantasized once that maybe I could go to the director and say, look, I'd like to go with that group once. Uh, but I could imagine them saying, well, great, you go away for two months in the middle of this program to have yourself a good time. But it's the minutiae of these things. And then there's the grandness of a weapon like the Stinger that changes changes history. Once that first shot was fired, we know this in, now with retrospect looking back, the Russians changed their strategy. They flew high, and the decision was out of the reach of all the supplies going in. The logistic battle was over. Uh, and then they began packing it in shortly thereafter, and it was known to us that the game was, the game was up. So... Uh, Really, it was an extraordinary, uh, and you go to CIA on the right side, you have to get beyond the the stars and the biblical cloak. There's uh, there's some key paintings done by the fine arts of the CIA, uh, commissioned paintings. And I think people contribute to, uh, for particular ones. One of them, Virginia Hall, the great American female spy who parachuted behind the lines during World War II to organize the resistance. But one of the five paintings, and it was the second one painted, as a matter of fact, was that split second, where the, the, actually it was the second, the first one misfired. Very few people know that. But the second shot fired that really, I think, turned aside in the war. And that was an image of the, uh, the Mujahideen firing off a stinger, right? Right, and that was taken off of an actual video at the scene. In other words, that is a real picture. That's not somebody's imagination. That is based on the, the video. You know, I, I've seen that John, image before, but I didn't know what it was until I read it in the book. As you are going through this process of like, getting the weapons and how you spoke on the importance of the logistics of it, and um, there was one part where you spoke about going to Egypt and and visiting the Sinai and how, you know, the, the Sinai has a lot of uh, historical importance, uh, especially in the Bible and things like that. Um, what was that like for you, just visiting that area? Well, you mentioned the Sinai and the, and the 
importance of going there are weapons, but but you didn't tell that your 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 reader has been uh, Abraham spoke to me, so mm. so I was there with Charlie uh, Charlie Wilson and we were negotiating. He wasn't. He was meeting uh, uh, Mubarak, the president. But I was negotiating with them with the Egyptians who were making uh, Soviet designed weapons, AK forty sevens, and we were arguing about the price. So they brought me up to the burning bush, Abraham's burning bush. And uh, so the Egyptian said to me just what you said, well, Jack, how was it? And I said, well, to be honest, General, uh, uh, the bush spoke to me. <laughs> because also for Muslims, the bush is very sacred. And I thought his, his mouth was going to drop. And I said, yeah, the bush said $167. And that was the price that I was negotiating for, for the weapon. So the guy turned me and said, okay, it's 167. That's the honest kind of truth. In other words, I may, maybe off, I may be off by the dollars, but what I'm not off by is what took place in that, that minute. So uh, if, the thing I remember most about the trip, well, for your audience, should there be any doubt, Abraham did not speak to me, okay? <laughs> I wish he had. But, but, you know, sometimes you need to turn a phrase just to sort of loosen things up when you have tough right. uh, tough. Negotiations. Um, so the Egyptians. Why you go to the Egyptians is you know we couldn't use American weapons because on the battlefield you wanted the insurgents, which the Mujahideen were, to be able to take compatible weapons. They would overrun their Russians or Russian uh, supply areas, and you wouldn't be able to use them. The second one, there was the the image that we wanted to create, and I say image, it was, you know, someone would say it was the cover. In other words, if you have American weapons, then the Americans are involved. Well, the Russians knew from day one that we were firing, you know, providing the weapons. So it wasn't exactly covered, but it allowed both sides. Like we didn't rub our finger in the eye. In other words, it wasn't, uh, you know, an M16 firing at them. So the main reason was the compatibility of the weapons, but the second one is to try and keep uh, it from becoming a direct U.S. Uh, uh, Russia battle, and we were very careful. And it's a, an approach that I recommend today. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm trying to find the right word. I want to say satisfied. That's too pompous. But I, I, I really think using the CIA and with uh, and using surrogate troops that want to fight in a foreign country is a it's a it's a in much of the world is a better formula than putting our troops on the ground uh, and uh, the lives and the cost is just considerably more and you know i think you're better off covertly uh, why i think there's a hundred percent totally insistent that we go after bin laden and finish that off but I'm, I'm not convinced that the right course of action was to put an army on the ground. I think uh, it might have been better, uh, happier if we had just continued the old old battle. In fact, when we went in before the army, uh, the full army was there, what brought down the Taliban was a combination of the agency and special a group, relatively small group of special forces, CIA people that organized the old uh, Taliban fighters, or they weren't Taliban, they didn't exist back in my day, the Mujahideen. Right. And that's how we uh, brought down the Taliban. So 
uh, it's a formula that's a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit different, and, uh, and one that I advocate. I actually had a Wall Street Journal in July of 2010 saying they, they titled it "I Didn't Afghan Solution," and it was basically trying to use covert action instead of uh, in, instead of, of putting uh, putting our troops underground. Yeah, and so I, I kind of, you know, kind of rolling inside. I wanted to ask you one last question uh, before we we finished up, and that was as you as the Americans pulled out of Afghanistan, um, I think looking back, that was the point where a lot of these individuals who were in Afghanistan, such as Osama bin Laden and people like him, started to really have their issue or their beef with the United States. Is that something that you were aware of at the time, or, or it wasn't until later on? Well, this is a very good point, and it's bad history. Um, uh, bin Laden was a nobody, absolute nobody, in the uh, fight against the Russians. I mean, he was... Uh, I actually talked to the chief out there about it, and uh, he said, look, I think there was two skirmishes, no big deal. Uh, where he might have contributed uh, uh, something. But what people don't understand is CIA supported the Mujahideen right. Afghanis. Uh, bin Laden was a Saudi, and there was a group of uh, exiles, if that's the right word, who also fought in uh, in Afghanistan, but they were terribly important, but they were funded by Middle Eastern countries. In other words, Bin Laden never got a penny from it, right? So when when the Russians left, Bin Laden left. He wasn't there. He went. He was back in the, the Sudan. You know. He, you know. He didn't go back to Afghanistan until '95. In other words, the war they they pulled out in '89. He was gone for six years, and eventually went there as refuge. So it's a really bad concept to see Mujahideen then equals you know Bin Laden. So it is not a product of the, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. program. Now, they didn't sour. The other second thing is, even though the Russians pulled out, they kept a puppet government going for three years. There was, you had a communist in power for three years, even after the Russians left. So there was a big yap, and people like to truncate it so that all of a sudden you have you have the, the, the Mujahideen, and then you have the Taliban and, uh, and uh, bin Laden. And that isn't accurate. There's a big gap in there. And bin Laden was never supported, never received any weapons at all from the United States. And that was checked out a couple of times, certainly no stinger, but uh, and so on. So uh, he's not part of our, our lineage. Uh, what was interesting is when we were leaving... Uh, and packing in, Charlie Wilson and I both had a long discussion and we're proposing unsuccessfully that we stay in and also that we would do things, uh, minds and hearts of people. And uh, what's interesting with the advantage of years since then, uh, most of the uh, establishment wanted to get out. But I will say, when I look back with hindsight, I think I was wrong. I think Charlie and I could have spent whatever tens of millions of dollars to try and make uh, uh, Afghanistan right. It would have been for naught. 
In other words, it, was, it wasn't going to change things whatsoever. The change is uh, the people in Afghanistan really have to want democracy. And this is a very important theme in the book, which is don't do covert action you know, and try and force feed people. If, if you don't have people who want to fight, if you don't have people that believe in something, then don't throw yourself in or your troops or your money to trying to support them. So when I look back on it, uh, I think those who say, oh, we should have stayed and it would have been a happy place, uh, they weren't around. There wasn't a single contrary voice. But I would say if we stayed around, uh, in all honesty, I, I don't think it would have made a difference. So I think, I think our perspective, as well-meaning as Charlie and I were on that, I think history would would show that it would have been a feckless, uh, a feckless effort. So, John, on that, I think we should pull the plug. Yeah, sure. Um, so I do appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me and, and speak about some of these things. I know my audience is going to appreciate it. Uh, it's an excellent book, and I recommend that uh, my readers would pick it up. And again, I just want to thank you for coming on, and thank you for your service as well. I appreciate it very much. And John, we can circle back and do it again uh, at your convenience. Thank you, sir.